one day I decided to ask myself, could I break five minutes in the mile? At age 30, could I return to the sport of track and go after my unmet goal of breaking five minutes? Was my body capable of this? Was my mind capable of this? And most importantly, was my spirit capable of pushing through the ups and downs to find the answer? You are listening to Breaking Five, a running podcast, where we search for this answer as well as yours for achieving your Breaking Five moment, whatever that may be for you. We will gain inspiration and knowledge from others who have achieved their Breaking Five moment, those working towards theirs, as well as those who have helped the athletes along the way. I'm your host, Kristen Schultz, physical therapist, runner, and running coach. Let's run full force towards our wildest dreams and take a listen to today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode of Breaking Five, a running podcast. Today, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Lindsay Scott. Guys, this is a really good episode. You're going to have to listen. Um, It's for both runners and running clinicians. Um, Lindsay is a physical therapist and running coach, and she also works with clinicians. So this is great for all of you. We go over the common misconceptions out there on different topics in running, such as heel striking, shoes, um, orthotics, form. We go into a lot of um, good stuff that make it practical to all you runners out there. And obviously, this is really helpful for any clinicians out there as well. And then we also go into what it's like to start up your own uh, run-based practice. I had a really good discussion around that, as well as many other things like research and what other topics to be following and where to find them if you are a clinician. But this is great, like I said, for both runners and clinicians. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm sure we could have talked so much longer, but we got other things we had to go do too. But we could have talked running, I'm sure, for like three hours on this episode today. So anyways, let's dive into today's episode. And Lindsay, thank you so much again for coming on and we'll see you inside the episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Breaking Five, a running podcast. Super excited today. Today I have Lindsay Scott. Lindsay Scott is a physical therapist and running coach. She's based in Toronto and she does a number of things. She's going to share all about it, but she works with runners on the coaching side. She works with runners as a physical therapist. And then she also works with running clinicians, who I know I have listening here as well, in a mastermind and mentorship, as well as some free monthly calls that she does that We're going to talk more about all this, but Lindsay, I'm so excited that you came on to share your knowledge in all realms, and I'm excited to get to connect with you too. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's always just such a joy to connect with other people who are excited about similar things. So thank you so much. Yes. All things running. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So if you don't mind, I like to start with your own running journey, then we'll get into your own clinician journey. Could Mm -hmm. you share with my audience who you are as a runner. I know you're a triathlete as well, but how did you get into the sport um, of running? So I started running um, a little bit later, I think, than a, a lot of individuals who are big runners. So I started running after my undergraduate degree. So I was a rugby player. Well, I played a little bit of every sport growing up, but then through university, rugby was my sport. I played for my school and towards the end of university, I kind of had that uh, like, oh, what am I doing with my life? I have to make real decisions now moment and decided to move to Nepal. (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. As one does. And that was for me the first time, like I was graduating with a phys ed degree. I'd always been active. I was used to being in the, uh, like in the weight room, that kind of thing. 
but I had never had a situation where I had to coach myself or figure it all out for myself and not just show up when I was told and do what I was told. So for the first time in my life, I was without a coach or a program. And I also was out without anything familiar, really, like in a completely different environment. And so I started running, just knowing activity is grounding for me. Like movement has always been grounding and powerful and um, sort of that mental escape and clarity. So I started running and in Nepal, I was living in Kathmandu where it was like wildly busy all the time. So I would get up just super early and uh, go for a run as the sun was coming up. And I just fell in love with it because it was the first time I kind of felt at home in that environment that was so completely different than anything that had ever been home before. Um, And I think a lot of runners can relate to that feeling of like just getting to know new surroundings through running and starting to make connections of, I didn't speak the language, but I recognized like the same woman who would be outside that temple every morning. (laughs) would start to acknowledge me and I would acknowledge back and that kind of thing. So I guess, yeah, that's where I really fell in love with running and how powerful it was. Um, I ran my first marathon while living in Nepal. I don't recommend (laughs) first marathons at altitude without good training. (laughs) And then when I moved back to Toronto, the the joke in Toronto kind of is that the, the public transit is less than dependable. So when I went back to do my master's degree, I started running as a run commute because I was just faster than the subway. So (laughs) you're like, this is way faster. Yeah, exactly. Or at least more dependable, more predictable. So yeah, yeah, that's when I started to run. Oh, awesome. So you more did other sports growing up then. I mean, rugby, it sounds like a big one. Yeah. So it was kind of after. Yeah. In fact, I like, I completely remember a coach, a basketball coach, or like, I was probably pretty young elementary school who was like, Oh, Lindsay's the slowest on the team. Like I just, I always had in my head, I wasn't good at running, but it turns out I just hadn't really been put in the right environment for it. So yeah. Yeah. Well, super cool. Also that you went to Nepal. I mean, I know that's not what this podcast is about, (laughs) but how long were you over there? I was there for, it was about eight months. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Highly recommend. Super, super long, but yeah. Yeah, Did you work, were you working as a physio at that time or? No, I wasn't. I actually hadn't even decided I was going to be a physio yet. It was while I was there that I was kind of like, okay, yeah, physio is, is for me. I was working, I was teaching life skills through sport and play. So I was in uh, various schools every day and um, yeah, learning and teaching. And, and I also, I was there during a time that there wasn't a ton of political stability. And what that meant is that there were a lot of days where there were, where it wasn't a hundred percent safe for me to be traveling across the city on my own and that sort of thing. So on those days I would go into, uh, there was a home down the street for children who had had, this is a total sidebar conversation but no I know that I'm the one that asked though so (laughs) I want to know (laughs) so it was a it was a healthcare center and home for children who had had leprosy and so kind of seeing that dichotomy of I had always thought of physio as like oh you sprain your ankle you go to the physio but starting to see just other cool opportunities that one could like other areas of practice that physios could dive into and ways they could help people and so I think that was sort of a catalyst for me to be like Physio is a pretty cool opportunity. So yeah, yeah. so there yeah. you have it. Cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Then you came back to Toronto, came a physio yeah. therapist or a physio, I should say. We'll, yes. We'll, we'll, <laughs> saying physio I'll here. try, I'll try and I'll try and get the lingo down. <laughs> no, no. Physio is uh, way more acceptable because that's everywhere else. Except, you know, so. <laughs> 
that works better. I do have people that listen in other countries, so it'll work. <laughs> Perfect. Cool. So that's where you kind of like fell in love with running. Then going into your, you know, starting a practice with runners, how did that all come about as far as, I mean, were you a clinician with, you know, the general population for a while? Or Yeah. So I was for a few years, I was, you know, still running a lot myself, practicing with the general population, sort of starting to really get into triathlon and just really curious for myself about like what was possible for myself as a, as a runner and a triathlete. And I I think it's really common in our profession for those first few years of practice to be kind of spinning your wheels a bit, trying to figure out there's a, a certain element of imposter syndrome of like, who am I to be helping all these people and starting to learn a little bit about who the people were who really gave me energy when I was in clinic. And I yeah. was was just definitely recognizing that working with people who were excited about running really lit me up and that I really felt I had a lot to offer them and to share. And I was really excited about working with them. But the challenge then became like, okay, well, I know that, but how do I get more runners in front of me? Um, So it took me a few years of kind of spinning my wheels before I really realized or before I was really able to get much traction in terms of getting more involved in the run community and starting to get more runners in front of me. Um, so yeah, I definitely did practice in a general population for a while, but I guess it's been about seven or eight years now where I would say about 95% of my, my, um, those who I, I work with are either runners or endurance athletes. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So, well, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but in Canada, you're all like independently contracted, you were saying, right? <laughs> Mostly. Yeah. Mostly. Okay. Okay. So it's not tech. Well, is it technically like your own business then or? Yes. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you start working more with runners. It's really been seven, eight years, which is awesome. Like very <laughs> running focused. It sounds like, I know we were talking before the call, like you have people coming, you know, hours away to come see you guys. I'm assuming because they're endurance athletes that need help. Right. What challenges did you find? And I guess what solutions did you find in learning more for treating runners? Cause I don't know how it is in Canada, but I don't really feel like, I mean, for most things, even in school, we don't necessarily learn the tools we need to, you know, right runners. What kind of things did you do to become better at that? Right I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I think a hundred percent same thing here is like, I think maybe we had a one hour lecture in physio school about running <laughs> and, and <laughs> I'm sure if I were to pull those notes out now, cause I'm that person that they're somewhere upstairs that I would be horrified by some of the stuff. Not that our education wasn't amazing, but that yeah. it was just like really not touched on. So yeah, it definitely took a, a bit of a deep dive. So starting with taking some courses, but I think most of us who work clinically can relate to that feeling of like, okay, so I took a course all weekend and then I show up in clinic on Monday and like, now what? (laughs) And like, what, what do I do with that info? And, and so I kind of got to the point where I was like, I've taken all the courses, but I'm still just not really sure how to implement it. I'm not really certain. I'm not seeing more runners necessarily, which also can be challenging when you're working in a clinic that isn't necessarily targeting a more active population. It can be really challenging of like, how do I get people in front of me to be practicing these skills? So I, I would say definitely the catalyst for me were number one, recognizing there was never going to be a course that made me feel like, well, I've arrived. I'm now the run expert. Right. (laughs) So uh, just making that decision of like, I'm not going to wait for that feeling of like now was the perfect time or now I'm the absolute expert. Um, but just starting to put myself out there a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and listen, easier said than done, (laughs) right? but important nonetheless, I think I feel sometimes like a broken record, broken record. Cause I say this so often, but I truly believe that the most powerful 
powerful thing we can do to elevate both ourselves and everyone around us is just to be connecting and collaborating with people who are excited about the same things. So reaching out to everyone I knew who was in any way working as a clinician who was working with a runner to, hey, can I hang out with you for an hour? Hey, do you want to go for a run? That kind of thing. So just really starting to, to chat with other people. And I think that also was really helpful to be like, hey, I'm not crazy to think that it's possible that I could have a really run focused practice here. Right. Right. And then uh, two other things were just sort of reflecting on like, what are the problems that runners are having? Like, what is it that I see? What are their questions? And how can I take my passion and answer those questions for them? So really tuning into what do they want and need and how can I solve their problems? And then just getting comfortable shouting it from the rooftops. This is who I am and this is what I do. And that's another one that like, listen, imposter syndrome. I think anyone who says that's not a thing for them would be lying. (laughs) Um, So easier said than done, but It was pointed out to me that across Toronto, like even when I would be, it would take me at the time, I think like 25 minutes via the subway to get to my clinic. And in that time I was passing, I don't know, at least 50 different clinics that someone could choose to go to. Right. And especially as a specialty clinic, we're charging a little bit more for that niche population. right? Right. And so I need an athlete to know why they should go past all those 50 other (laughs) clinics to walk into my clinic. Right. Right. And so unless I'm really clear on what I have to offer and what my values are so that I can then shout it from the rooftops, left, right, and center, then that person is not going to know. And they're, and I don't blame them for just going to the like closest, easiest person. Right. Right. Um, So just reminding myself of that, of like, I, I need to be really vocal about, about, this is why you should invest um, in yourself by working with me. Yep. Yep. And in Canada, is it all um, cash-based? Like, you know, for for physical therapists, it's not really insurance-based. There are a few options, but we'll say that like the average person who wants to access a physiotherapist, like it is private practice. Yeah. Yeah. So to a degree, I mean, regardless, like you have to get good at like marketing yourself and yeah, you have no choice telling patients why they should work with you. Is that something you guys learn in school or no? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to think so. Yeah, all I could do was laugh. No, I would like to think that since I have graduated from my, uh, here it's a a master's degree program. When I finished my master's, I would like to think it's getting better. And I think there's a lot more conversation now than there ever was when I was in school about the need for that sort of thing. And I also just think with social media, like the basics of marketing are out there. And yes, exactly. So I would like to think it's getting better, but no, we did very, very little of that. So you had to learn that too. as well as learning the skills to work with runners and everything. Yeah. Well, learning. I am learning. I mean, as in it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not easy either. Right. Uh, the, the marketing or the learning. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, like, I think most of us would say, we went into this profession because we're really excited about supporting others and achieving whatever goals are meaningful to them. Right. I think, our personality type is such that, and, and I think it, for most people, it's, it's can be really challenging to be like, Hey, but tur- let's turn the tables. Look at me, look at me. Right. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily what marketing has to be about. As I said, like, yeah. look at the questions that our runners are coming to you with and help them answer those questions. But still, it's not easy to put yourself out there. Yeah, no, so. I agree. There's some days mm-hmm. I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Like if, if I do am going the way of like sharing a personal story to mm-hmm. I don't know, connect with my audience stuff, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm just talking about myself, but it's like, I know it's not what I'm doing. Like it's to connect with them, but some days you just feel like, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put yourself out there. <laughs> totally. 
but no, I really liked what you said before, like as far as becoming like the run expert, like you're never just going to like arrive necessarily. Mm -hmm. You just have to decide that you are one and go start. I'm, you know, assuming like taking action towards it, you know, you're never just going to be like, wow, all of a sudden I'm this run expert. Like it's got to come with experience and action, you know, before you maybe feel ready, which I think is most things and kind of a misconception or like schooling just always has that feel that you have to, you know, pass something or you have to complete something to be the Mm -hmm. expert versus you just have to actually just be it and go out there and do it. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and I also think it's like, if you took 10 of the air quotes, the best therapists in the world and put the same person in front of them and ask them to like assess them, treat them, come up with a plan with them, all 10 people would do it differently, right? Like there's no absolute right and wrong. Like, okay, maybe there might be some absolute, like that's not a good life decision, (laughs) but like there's no one size fits all approach to any of it, right? Um, and, And I think that's also part of it is recognizing that like, if you are able to educate your, your runner, if you're able to help them sort of sift through and tease out like the multifactorial nature of their injuries, if you are able to empower them. And if you show up with that, like passion and energy, you're going to have a lot to offer for them. Right. And at the end of the day, I would rather work with a clinician who has that passion and that like, I walk away feeling empowered and excited. And like, I've learned a lot than necessarily the clinician who just is like hands-on technically the most competent. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. No, I think that's just super important to hear on multiple ends. And, you know, as a clinician, just remembering, cause I think, I mean, it's still something I struggle with sometimes. I'm just like, there's this perfect answer. I don't know. Like, I think it's kind of how my brain, like yeah. in schooling was like, oh, like there should be like this perfect, like math answer to every question. And when you get to physical therapy, you learn there's really not, you just got to be mm-hmm. okay with that. And I still struggle with that. Like, yeah, like you said, like every clinician, like you have 10 of the best clinicians are all going to treat it differently and see it a little bit differently. And yeah that's okay. And with that said, like, what degree do you think comes down to that patient therapist relationship and trust that the you know patient has just feeling cared for more than anything? Do you feel like that's a factor? Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, the research is there to, to tell us that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing at the end of the day, like, uh, again, I would like to think that, that the education for entry to practice physiotherapists is improving in, in acknowledging that. And certainly it was something that we taught, touched on in school, but I think in school, you're so obsessed with like, okay, but where does that muscle attach? And like, what is that special test called again? And that sort of mm-hmm. thing that you sometimes, as well as like, we're so obsessed with getting good marks. Like, let's face yeah. it. Most of us are that, that type A personality. Who's like, <laughs> I only got a 95. Where's my last 5%. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're working with humans. There's stress and there's life and there's fatigue and there's like all these other things that are playing into it. Um, and so I think, yeah, that ability to develop that therapeutic relationship, to help them feel empowered, to help them feel informed, that sort of thing is, is 95% of what we're, we're doing. And, and as I said, like we have the research to back that. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've been seeing a lot with COVID. I feel like the thing I say most frequently right now to, to athletes is that reminder that all stress is stress, like mental, right. mental, <laughs> physical, emotional stress. Like it's all stress. And yeah we have a finite capacity for, or like a finite amount of energy. Right. And so if you're putting way more of that pie to dealing with the emotional overload of the last, however, year and a bit, then you have a lot less available to yourself for, for the physical load. So maybe that means we need to adjust our expectations around our running and our training and how well we're able to show up and how well our bodies are able to tolerate a given load. So yeah, that's always like, so important to remember. And I just remember like when I was working in a job, I didn't love how I didn't 
tolerated yeah. much training, right? It was more stress. And then once I got out of it, was working for myself, I was like, oh my gosh, I can tolerate a lot more. And then mm-hmm. this last year, I had a lot of stressors on top of, um, you know, coronavirus, and I found myself injured. And I was like, this is totally, I just knew mm-hmm. the big part was the stress because I was at my lowest training load when it happened. I was like, this right. like, like, wasn't even like training load, like overload. It's like very yeah. much mental stress. Just been interesting being on the other side of things and, and seeing it. So it's always right. important to remind our athletes and any runner <laughs> listening that that's just such a big role. And it really does matter. <laughs> right. And, and I often, I ask every athlete I work with who's injured, like, what do you think happened? And it's interesting. People yeah. will say things like, oh, my running shoes were too old. Or like, oh, I think I stepped off that curb funny and didn't notice it. Or, <laughs> oh, like I skipped that one strength training workout. And I exaggerate a little bit, but yeah. But what about the fact that like, if, if you dive a little bit deeper, what was your sleep like? What was yeah. going on at home? And almost always you can certainly, I know in myself and the clinicians that I work with, we talk about this all the time. Our most significant injuries have always happened at a major like transition in our life or yeah. <laughs> uh, just an overwhelming period in our life and that kind yeah. of thing. And especially because I think a lot of us as athletes, when we're going through something challenging, our tendency is to just like, oh, I just need to run, like Throw running is my more. therapy. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Of like, I just need to get out there and, and use running to, to help manage. But it's kind of this funny thing where like, that's at the point where you're almost the most vulnerable. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's totally like for me with my, with coronavirus, I it was like, well, I mean, I've shared this before, it doesn't really matter. Like, I went through like a breakup with a long term relationship the week before coronavirus, then coronavirus hit. And I remember when coronavirus hit, I just started like my runs ramped up. My easy runs were like, it was like 10 seconds a mile faster, but I literally just felt like I couldn't slow down. Like, I was just like, I don't know. And then I had this conversation with my coach, and we were just like, well, and I was also the fittest I'd been in like since college. She's like, I, I don't mean, maybe you're just, I mean, I think you're actually just getting, you know, more more fit like I think it's fine it was only like 10 seconds but I just felt like it was just this like I couldn't slow down feeling like kind mm. of unhealthy mentally like yes feeling like that's yeah. just how I reacted to coronavirus which then I think it finally spiraled a few months later and I just went crash right right that combination of the load the physical load of, of that much more physical demand on your body plus yeah. everything else that was going on in life was yeah too much yeah relatable (laughs) yes yes and like other injuries major injuries I've had same thing so yeah just good good to share again yeah I guess going into just because you mentioned some of the things some things that people think cause their injuries and you were mentioning Mm -hmm. a few things before like which is like one strength workout or went out the curb, which, okay, I know this is a side note, but kind of funny because I recently was having a little bit of an issue outside my foot. Also, we, uh, as clinicians, we can be very much on the athlete side a lot of times because <laughs> yes, I've done the yes, same yes. thing. I'm like, no, I like, I think I just like went off. <laughs> I did that the other day with my thing. I was like, I think I just like stepped off the curb wrong the other day or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I was convincing myself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, myself, one of the... clinician. <laughs> yes. Yes. And one of the things I often say to people when they're like, yeah, it's because my shoes, I ran, my shoes were a week too old <laughs> of like, maybe, maybe that was one factor. Right. Yeah. But, but like what it suggests is that you were probably sitting just below a threshold, right. That if it hadn't been that one little thing, then right. a week later, it would have been something else. So yeah. the analogy I've been using a lot recently with people is it's like making soup, returning from injury training, being a runner is like 
making soup of if you were to Google it, like how do I make vegetable soup or whatever kind of soup you prefer, (laughs) you'd come up with millions and millions of hits, millions of ways to go about it. Right. And at the end of the day, you're always going to get soup. You're always going to, you know, hopefully always return from your injury. You're always going to get more (laughs) fit. You're always going to get to your race, but along the way you might need different ingredients and the ingredients that work best for me might be different ingredients than those that work best for you. And halfway through, if I open the pot and look at it, it might look gross, but that it's because it's not ready yet. Right. Like you kind of have to wait and halfway through, I might taste it and be like, Oh, I need a little bit more of this seasoning or that seasoning. So just reminding yourself that there's like general recipes out there, but there's just so many different ways that we can go about it. And, and to not get too obsessed with, you know, like when I start to blame my, my running shoes, that's like saying a soup is made entirely with one, one ingredient, right. Of like, what about all the other things and trying to look at it as you're you like probably prior to injury you were gradually building 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 until you just tipped over a threshold and that also just means that same thing when it comes to recovery and so switching your running shoes is not going to be the only solution or just taking two weeks off of running is not going to be the only solution that we have to look at it more from that like multi-pronged approach if that makes sense yeah yeah I totally, any injury I had when I was younger, it was the shoes. I switched shoes. Every yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So been- yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around shoes. I think another common one that we hear is like, oh, I'm just overtrained. But my question to an athlete who says that is like, it's overload. It's, it's kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? What right. Part? Like, yeah. yeah. Often people will say, oh, it was just like too much too soon. And, and it could be literally as simple in many cases that yes, what pushed you over that threshold was just like training error. Yeah. But let's also look at it in the context of what else was going on in your life at that time, right? That made it so that you didn't have the capacity to tolerate that training. And there are, of course, there are some cases where it's that runner who's like, yeah, like started running two months ago, like ran a marathon a month later, that kind of thing. Like, of course, that's just straight up training error, but I still think it's a valuable time to have the conversation of looking at it from nutrition, sleep, mobility right. how are things moving overall that kind of thing right right it's just that whole picture it's not just the running at all it's everything <laughs> yeah exactly I, I think it's just good reminders for all the runners out there that's ever had an injury <laughs> just remember it's not just the running it's all of this um yeah since we were talking about shoes what mm. what is your take on running shoes what myths yes. are out there what is your do you like to t- talk to your runners about um, shoes and everything? Yeah, a lot of things. So number one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, number one. So running shoes, I would say we place a lot more blame, if you will, on our running shoes than I think they really deserve sometimes, right? Like we give them too much credit <laughs> yes. of like rarely is an injury, just your running shoes. Right. With that in mind though, so if you like, We'll, we'll say the, the golden rules of when people say, which running shoes should I get? So you can imagine the like billions and billions of dollars that have gone into researching this and performance and injury are two sort of different things when it comes to talking about running shoes. But from an injury prevention perspective, the best we can say right now is that the most comfortable running shoe for you is probably the best running shoe for you. So don't be afraid to try on a whole bunch of different shoes, like try and go to a running shoe store in particular, like shop small and local, but into a running yes. shoe store where it's full of runners and not just the local big chain sporting goods store kind of thing right. so that they really do know their product and they won't be irritated by you trying on a whole bunch of different shoes and going right now, the best 
principle we have is go with what's most comfortable. We always tell people don't make a dramatic change. So if you've been running on one with like a 14 millimeter drop, there's like, do not all of a sudden be like, well, zero mil. I heard that's really good. (laughs) And on that note, there are, I mean, some, we do know that a certain amount of heel toe drop will load different body types, different, like, you know, your knees versus your foot and ankle and that sort of thing. But for the most part, I try to encourage athletes to move away from the idea that low drop is better that I think a lot of my athletes who are performing at a, a really high level are still wearing, you know, eight to 10 millimeter drop and have no reason to, to go below that. So the research tells us that there is no reason for a runner who is uninjured from an injury prevention perspective to be focusing on dropping their going, reducing their heel toe drop. We always tell runners, I want you to, whenever possible, like multiple pairs of running shoes is definitely going to be beneficial for you. And I cannot remember the actual stat, but there's one study in particular where they looked at number of pairs of shoes. They tracked people over the the course of a marathon training block. And those who had, I think it was 3.6 pairs of running shoes over the, over the training block. (laughs) And it was a 16 week block versus 1.2 pairs or something like that had, had almost, almost not quite 40% fewer running related injuries than those who had only the one pair on average. So basically having multiple pairs on the go. And the hypothesis is number one, that your shoes also need to like recover and rebound, like the material needs to rebound as well as just have introducing a little bit of variability in the load on your body is the reason we believe that has a protective effect. So even if you though know, like this is my shoe, it's the only good shoe for me, then we want you to have multiple, like two pairs of the same shoe. But ideally we like to think of it as you would have one shoe for like your easier days, your long run days, and then one shoe for more like your tempo and your workout days, assuming that you're someone who's doing that type of training. And then the last thing is that in most cases, um, a neutral shoe is probably statistically best. So don't let anyone ever look at you and be like, you pronate, you should have this shoe unless they are a highly trained professional. So yeah, number yeah. two that actually need like pronation control shoes. That's pretty low, extremely low. And and so there was one study on that too, where they looked at people. They like defined people in categories of like you pronate, you have a neutral foot, you supinate, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then they put them all in neutral shoe. Or half the group then were put into a neutral shoe, and half of each group was then put into whatever shoe fit their foot type based on how they had been. And they identified the foot type both just statically. So looking at them as well as dynamically. So watching them move and statistically everyone did better in neutral and the, in a neutral shoe and the people who had been classified as pronators actually had fewer injuries than the people who had been classified as a neutral foot pattern. So (laughs) even then, I think a lot of runners are like, they kind of look guilty when they're like, oh yeah, I pronate as though it makes them a bad human. But like statistically you're in a great spot, my friend. So that's natural. You're supposed to pronate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So why did pronation become something that was looked at as bad? Or I guess even really in our profession, I mean, to a degree, I mean, why? Yeah. I mean, I I think going through my brain, like why? I think because the running shoe companies stood to make a lot of money off of it. Yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> they decided they need different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could sell shoes that like, yeah, yeah. You are going to be a disaster when you run, unless you get this fancy shoe with this, this, and this. So yeah, yeah I don't know. Yes. So yeah, I, yeah, I know that was a long-winded response, but basically neutral is usually best more than one pair. If you can swing it, don't make a dramatic change. What else? Yeah. 
there's Bogle, I'm missing some. Local. I know that wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you can. Yeah. Don't make a dramatic change and comfort. If there is a shoe that feels more comfortable than another shoe, go with that one. Yeah. I like it. No, I think that's very good. Yeah. Make sure to review this. If you guys have this, it's good. That, and then I don't know about you and the runners you work with, but recently we're seeing people who are doing the, the like running in a carbon shoe for their training, all a lot of their training. Have you seen that at uh, all? A carbon shoe? Like a shoe, like a carbon plated shoe. Mm-mm, no. Oh man. We've been seeing that Why? a lot in clinic. Is that like, like they're wearing popular? like, they're, yeah, like people wearing their, you know, like their Nike next percents or that kind of thing on a regular basis that it's exactly. just like, that's a lot of load on your body, man. So save the no. fancy shoes for the fancy runs. <laughs> what about, do you see a lot of people that are in orthotics or want to be in orthotics? What is your channel? Less now than we used to. <laughs> what is my take? My take is if we can fix the problem without an orthotic, that would be my preference. <laughs> always, always. I think a lot of people, it comes down to at the end of the day, if they are that really weak with some mobility work through their foot. So making sure that they're moving really well. Each foot has 33 joints, right? So we need to make sure that you're moving well through your foot. And then that you have strength and stability through your foot. And typically someone who just lacks strength and stability and or mobility in their foot, we put the, the, traditionally they are sometimes put into an orthotic where it's like, we can fix those things without an orthotic, which is both yes. expensive and not actually fixing your problem. So yeah. I, th- I think overall orthotics definitely have a time in place. If there's someone, for example, who has a lack of passive stability, so a difference between your active stability, your ability, your ability to find strength and stability through your foot versus you just have had an injury or for whatever reason, you're not, you have too much stability there. Yeah. Or too much that I said that backwards. <laughs> you have too much movement in, in a certain joint. Then in that case, yes, we may want to, to introduce something, but as a general rule, let's try to fix it without. Sometimes I will also use an orthotic. If someone has really acute pain that they just can't get through life and the rehab process because they're in this cycle where they're always, always, always in an acute scenario, then we'll sometimes put an orthotic in as somewhat of a temporary fix. The idea being of this is enough to offload that tissue so that we can get you through this acute phase so that we can rehab it so that we can get rid of the orthotic. But basically if someone recommends orthotics to you, be critical as to why. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I still like just have people that um, this isn't necessarily clients. It's just in everyday life. This happened yesterday. I was at a meet and this lady like I was actually I was we were at a track meet and I was doing some calf raises just doing some of my rehab. She comes over to me, we're talking and then she was talking about orthotics and was just like, you know, you got to go get orthotics like, you know, like <laughs> there's such a misconception out there that that's the best way agreed. for with heel pain stuff. And I was like, okay. agreed. Yeah. Appreciate your advice. Yeah. <laughs> cool. That was t- two good topics there. Kind of off, not really off topic, but it's, I guess would be more for our clinicians listening. What do you use for keeping up with the research as far as do you have certain like journals you subscribe to or what's your method for keeping up with the research and everything? It's challenging to be honest. Yeah. So Twitter can be, I am not, I myself, my personal Twitter account is like, there's no tweets. <laughs> it's just so I can stalk the other folks, um, yeah. which I need to work on that because it's, I think it's really, as I said, like connecting and collaborating and engaging in conversation is so valuable, but following the research on that, especially because often some of the researchers will post stuff that you're going to need to like have paid access to in future, but when yeah. it's initially published or when it's just like an accepted manuscript, they'll share it on there. So that's a good way if you struggle to get access to research. I am very lucky that I um, have a volunteer role um, and capacity with an academic institution that okay. gives me yeah. access. I can 
pretty much search any article, but BGS, the British Journal of Sports Medicine has yeah. a lot of open access articles. If you're someone who doesn't yeah. um, have access as well as some great podcasts. And that's actually another one listening to podcasts and, and often you'll hear the researchers on those. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just chatting and connecting and collaborating with people as much as humanly possible to just try and see what, what other people have read, what other people are excited about um, that. And then I would say, so I'm Canadian, but I'm a member of our Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And in particular, under our association, it's divided up into divisions based on interests. But some of those divisions will also have access to different journals. So I don't know if it's the same for you, but join your associations because as much as it's not the same as having research access, journal access through an academic institution, there's still a ton of advantages to it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. No, that's good. I feel like for me, keeping up with research, I usually it's just more like following people that are going to yeah. keep up with it. And sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe I should actually have, but let's be realistic with myself too. I prefer that method, like follow people mm-hmm. I trust and then kind of keep up with it that way versus actually doing like the active like research side of it. But totally. well, here's so. the thing though, is that they're following and communicating with one another too, right? Like yeah. even even those people who are the leading researchers, that's a lot of how they learn and grow as well. It's yeah. like what what's going on in our in this world like what are we excited what are people excited about right now and so I I don't think there's any shame in that especially because I think one of the endearing but endearing faults of most of us in this profession is we try and take on so so much and so I think try to find a strategy that works for yourself that is efficient without feeling like you need to be spending eight hours a week just trying to keep right. up because it can very easily become that right yeah. so yeah. um there are a lot of great courses out there that will have summaries of of the research but yeah I really do think any chance you can just collaborate and connect with people and that includes social media is I think a really yeah. powerful tool so yeah. yeah that's my preferred way so maybe I'll just I like it <laughs> like but I like yeah you brought up too like you know follow, following people but then also podcasts so like that you have any favorite podcasts that you follow that helps you keep up with the research um so a lot of what I'll do is I will um uh yeah I definitely do but uh guests as well is like some of my favorite researcher uh, guests I'll follow what they're up to if that makes sense okay I do really like the BJSM podcast because it is really short little nuggets Um, I'm a mom as well yes (laughs) and so 15 minutes little highlights for me is really really valuable there are a lot of things out there though uh the run smarter podcast runner zone BJSM yeah there's a lot of really great ones out there and, and I would just say, start by, if you know of a researcher who has really been impactful or helpful for you, so Rich Willie, Chris, well, Chris Johnson is not necessarily doing active research, but he's out speaking a lot. I know you've had him on as a guest. Tom Goom is another one. So I often would say, start by looking at those names who are really involved, look at the podcast they've been on. And then if there's one that connects with you, go dive into some of the, the others. I've learned a lot from Chris Napier as a researcher. I'm my, one of my biggest interests is in running gate and he's done some really cool interesting research there so if you haven't listened to anything with him and i'm happy after uh we finish recording to share some with you some of his work and hopefully we can post for listeners to dive into if they're keen yeah i just wrote those down like some of the ones the the two i guess i have i don't listen to or haven't heard of the last one you chris napier was right yeah yeah i haven't heard of him necessarily maybe i didn't like on you know intentionally and then Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know the BJSM, but I don't follow their podcast or I didn't. Yeah. I think I knew they have one. I just don't actively follow it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. And then yeah. took that note so we can put them in the show notes for everyone. Very cool. 
going back, I know we're kind of going between clinician and runner stuff. <laughs> All good. I, think I think it's helpful for everyone. I, I did also ask, I had a couple of people that are, you know, runners and friends and they're not business owners or, cl- you know, clinicians. And I was like, do you like listening to that stuff? They're like, actually, I find it interesting. I was like, okay, cool. When I talk about mm-hmm. it on the podcast, they're like, yeah, it's cool. Keep it in. I was like, all right. Great. So, <laughs> since we were talking about shoes and the foot and everything, what do you, so I feel like this is for me, definitely like one part I was like, we didn't really learn that much on the foot. I don't feel like mm-hmm. in school yes. at all. Yes. And like my injury itself, like I recently, you know, plantar fascia has been a good reason to be like, I have more to still learn myself about this, you know, because I've had to like mm-hmm. rehab myself and stuff too. Um, but for the runners listening out there, like, let's even, let's say they don't have an injury even, you know, is there anything you feel like runners should be focusing on? you know, when it comes to their, their strength training or training in general, specifically to the foot, or do you not necessarily get them any focus if they don't have any injuries or anything at the time? Oh, I want every runner to be very aware of their foot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It is something I would say in the last couple of years in my practice, I've really started to get more and more interested in it and the role that it plays in other injuries at the team. Like, I think the foot is, it's one, it's so key. It's so, so, so important. Um, there are like on a daily basis, I'll do things where I'll treat someone's foot when they're in for like hip pain and we'll retest something in their hip. I've not touched their hip and they're already moving a lot better. So like, it's all connected. It's all super (laughs) important. I think, you know, like I said, like the foot has 33 different joints, And what needs to happen is that as you land on the ground, you need to be somewhat like malleable and able to adapt and have mobility through that foot. But then when you go to push off, you need to be a rigid lever through your foot to really get that really good propulsion, right? And so you need to be able to have really good movement and really good strength and control through your foot. So there's a couple of things that I do recommend to people. One is just like regular mobility work through their foot. Um, I want everyone to be able to stand on a single leg for at least 60 seconds and feel strong and confident. Yeah. And everyone always says like, oh, I have bad balance, but I'm willing to bet for most healthy, active runners, it's not, not that you're, it's not bad balance. It's bad yeah. strength and control through your foot. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so checking in on your mobility on the regular, even being aware of, um, we call it the tripod of the foot. So your yeah. heel, the ball of your foot, and then sort of the equivalent below your, your baby toe that the like knuckle at the bottom of your baby toe is that you should be, as you stand on one foot, you should be able to feel equal pressure through those three points in your foot. If you don't, then there's a couple of things that we need to look at. Like, is it, if you're more towards the outside of your foot, typically I'll start there with some mobility work. And and it's not always that that's the number one piece for that population, but usually we can do some mobility work to get your foot moving a little bit better, retest that standing on one foot. And all of a sudden someone will be able to get their, their weight a little bit more evenly distributed. And then from there, or if you're that person who just generally feels wobbly, like you're between the outside of your foot, the inside, the outside, the in foot or inside, yeah. or if you tend to gravitate more towards putting more weight through the center of your foot, then it's starting to talk a lot more about strength and control through your foot. So even things like I call it, well, most people, a lot of clinicians call it toe yoga. So like 
big toe up while the other toes come down and then big toes come down, other toes come up. And just for most runners at first, there's a lot of people who will be like, I can't even do that. Like, what is this? (laughs) And it's really just that neuromuscular control. Like you'll, if you practice that on the regular, you'll have so many gains and um, like really quickly, you'll notice a big difference. So just almost getting those muscles on board, you've got four layers of muscles in your feet. And most of us will default to just using the really superficial ones, but those aren't the ones that give us the, the strength and support and stability that we really need to be running our best. So, yeah. And it even makes sense if you just stand on one foot and then kind of let your foot kind of collapse in and look what happens through the the rest of your body. Like you're going to be turned in through your lower leg or for the clinicians, you're going to get internal rotation through the tibia. The knee will kind of dive in. It just, it makes complete sense that if you're not moving well through there, then um, you've got a problem, right? Yep. Yep. For the like uh, general listener, like runner that's listening, they don't maybe have an injury right now, or maybe they have in the past, but of everything you said there, what would you tell them to, to focus on as far as, or would it be just pay attention to your distribution of your foot next time? Like if mm. you are single leg balance or like yeah. yoga so I think, many times a, a week. I think, okay. So the lowest hanging fruit I'll say is just doing a really basic foot mobility. And I'm happy to share a, a video that we can put in the show notes as well. A really basic foot mobility series that you do a couple times a week anyways, that you can like, you can literally sit in front of the TV and just like check in on like, Hey, how am I moving here? That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, just to keep, make sure that you keep moving well through that foot. Yep. So I would start that, with that. And then just whenever you can throughout the day, like brush your teeth while doing your toe yoga and then when you are doing your strength training, start to think about that strong foot position. So, so a short foot position, we would call it. Think about getting to get active through the deeper act part of your foot. Of It doesn't have to be this like thing that takes over your life. But if you right. start to take note of how can I build it in, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of get the routine. And like you said, you can do it when you're just sitting in the living room or whatever. Like Exactly. Exactly. Be like a huge, huge ordeal. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so once you feel like you have good control of those muscles, then starting to build in dynamic things. Like I'm forever brushing my teeth on one foot while like tapping my, <laughs> my free leg all over the floor next to me, like making a little yeah. like tapping at 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, that kind of yep. thing, just to yep. stay strong through there. So if you're not already paying attention to your foot, basically I would just say build in a teeny tiny little bit of mobility each week, a teeny tiny little bit of strength work. And it's, it's exciting to see your potential there. Yeah. No, so, yeah. I love that. No, I think that's, that's helpful. Yeah. And if you want to yeah. drop that, we can put that in the show notes too. Yeah, exactly. Happy to. Yeah. And actually one more note for the clinicians is um, yeah. Gary Ward. He's a physio out of the UK. He's written a book called what the foot um, as okay. well as he has some other um, like courses and that kind of thing that are a really great price for what they are. It's all virtual. He really changed the way I look at the foot as well as, as my understanding of how it's going to affect the rest of the the body. So yeah. Yeah. Worth looking into his work. I can share from personal experience. Even before my injury, I was like, oh man, like, and I realized how much I had to learn still, but a couple of things I was just like, I know my big toe mobility isn't great, but I didn't really do anything about it, but I knew it. Yep. <laughs> um, and I've had a lot of heel injuries in the past. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Looking back now, it's silly. I'm just sharing this. Hopefully if any listeners like do it, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a good thing. I feel like I've learned a lot since. And I also, I had this mm-hmm. thing where 
my single leg deadlift. And I always thought maybe it's just me being a PT and being too concerned. I always would like internally rotate in on my left single leg deadlift. And it would always drive me crazy. I had a number of PTs and like coaches look at me. I was like, Hey, like, this is just like, why am I doing this? Pretty sure it was coming from my shirt. Almost positive. It's for my foot now that mm-hmm. like, you've it. learned more. Yeah. No one like caught that. I mean, I also didn't full. <laughs> like, yeah. But like, I'm pretty sure that's where that was coming from. Right. And we see that a lot in runners of like the automatic assumption of like, oh, it's because my glutes are weak or, oh, I need to be pushing my knee out. Right. But I think, I think that's for me, the the biggest change since I started to work more with runners and they teach you this in physio school, like always look above and below the injury site and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I guess it really just only started to hit home for me with runners of how much it matters, how well the whole system is moving. So yeah, yeah. Um, always, always, always look beyond just the like, oh, you need to push your knee up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I was legit like doing some like single leg deadlifts. I started doing with like a band, like to force myself yeah. into more like external rotation. I was like, maybe it's just like really weak, like on this side. I'm like, and right. anyways, it wouldn't make a difference. And then finally, now I've been focusing like, I don't put, I'm the one that totally rolled to my outside of the foot. Like I actually went back on some pictures, thankfully for Instagram, I guess there's a picture of me like deadlift. I was holding, doing a deadlift. I was just holding it at the top, totally a hundred percent rolled out on my feet, like really bad. Yeah. And I know mm-hmm. that's what I've been doing all along. Like I don't put pressure through my, my big toe at all. So I've just been re- relearning this. I don't know. I think I've done this my whole life, like to be honest. Yeah, so, yeah, probably. Like- <laughs> well, and that's, that's another thing I think that's an important uh, reminder for athletes as part of the rehab process is that our, our, our bodies are always going to figure out how to get from A to B, right? You'll get, you'll get through the movement somehow, but if you know, somewhere between A and B, there's a roadblock there, right? Then your body will start to be like, okay, cool. No problem. We're going to go A to C to B. And then, (laughs) so you end up hurt. So you go to physio or you do some mobility work or you you figure it out. So you remove your roadblock, but your body doesn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily learned that they no longer have to stop at C, that you no longer have to go to A to C to B, right? So even once you're moving better, sometimes it's just being really like slowing yourself down, being really intentional with with what your movement strategy is so that you're like, oh, right, A to B is far more efficient than stopping off at C in the meantime. So that's that's the role of a good physio. So if you're someone who's like, ah, I keep fixing it and it it isn't there, then you need to find yourself the right person. (laughs) Yes, yes hopefully and likely, you know, if you're a runner, especially find someone that, you know, specializes in runners in your area. Yes. You need help. Yeah. Like we both have communities of um, yeah. videos. We know of, you know, communities and people out there that work with runners. So let us know. And, you know, both U S Canada throughout the world. So <laughs> yeah, we got you. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure out someone, but cool. What else? I mean, we went over the pronation and we went over the shoes. What about heel striking? There's a lot out there. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. I heel strike. I know I should probably work on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That other guilty look of it's yes. like, don't worry, you're still a good person. Yes. So here's the thing. 95% of runners probably, if, if that's the estimate, 95% of runners <laughs> heel strike. So like, you're definitely a good human. So I, heel striking is really not something that stresses me out too much. I'm more, initially, I'm way more interested in, are you overstriding? So overstriding would be anytime your foot is landing well in front of your body or in front of your center of mass when you're running. So when we take a video of someone running from like a side profile, and I'm going to pause that video at the moment they are very first making contact with that or with the ground. If they're, if I'm in clinic, we'll do a gait assessment on the treadmill. Yeah. And if I then draw a line from your ankle to your knee and continue that same vector up, basically we do not want that shin bone, your tibia to be anything other than vertical. We want it to be as vertical as possible. We don't want it angled backwards. Yeah. So before getting excited about a heel strike, that's the thing I'm most excited about because that represents your peak breaking force. So peak breaking force is any 
force that's going horizontal in the wrong direction. So I'll explain to athletes like this is you, like if you're hopping up and down on a trampoline and you're landing with your foot, a foot in front of you, which direction are you bouncing? Like you're going to be bouncing backwards. So that's how you're landing when you're running. From a performance perspective, you're basically slamming on the brakes with every step that you take, right? From an injury perspective, if we look at the research, that's also one of the biggest predictors of running related injury. So I think that overstriding pattern, often runners have been conditioned. We look at that and we're like, oh, it's a heel strike. But really what the problem is there is it's an overstride. Yeah. So first things first, we're going to cue you and we're going to be really strategic about how we cue you. We're going to cue you And when I say we're really strategic, it's not a complicated procedure. In fact, we've intentionally, I will coach it to be as simple as humanly possible, as few cues as we can get you to, but we're going to coach you to be getting so that you have more of an up and over pattern with your foot, more of a marching pattern rather than a walking pad, Mm -hmm. Um, more of a marching pattern with your run so that you're going to be landing more underneath yourself. From there, it almost becomes difficult to heel strike, if you will. Um, (laughs) So the cues that we often talk to runners about there is we want you doing more of a march and we want you to imagine that you're balancing an egg on your toe. And that should get someone to land in more of a midfoot position with their foot more underneath themselves. So we've eliminated the overstride with that marching power pattern. But we know from looking at the research on coaching and motor learning and running is a motor skill that as soon as I give you an internal cue, meaning do this with your foot, you're less likely to learn that skill than if I give you an external cue, which is how are you going to act on your environment? So I want you to run while imagining that you're crushing a can with each step or Mm -hmm. while you're imagining that there's an egg balanced on top of your toe Mm -hmm. is going to, that your brain only has to process that as one thing. But if I say, I want you to, um, be running. And as you do that, do this with your foot. That's two separate cues that your brain has to process. And so you're not going to learn the skill nearly as powerfully. So anyways, no, I mean, this goes for all like strength training, training an athlete. Like you're trying to get their butt back in a deadlift. Like don't just be like, get the butt back more. Like pretend like you're pushing a door with your butt. Exactly. Like same thing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, but basically for the runners, I guess I always want you to like the heel strike thing. I guess I just think it's a little bit of a, the heel strike takes way too much blame. That's because the last thing what I want you to do is to be still overstriding, but now reaching forward with your toes. <laughs> so now you have the disadvantage of the, of the overstride, but you also have the disadvantage of now you're just overloading, going to overload through your calves, right? And yeah. which muscle group do I want taking the load of running? Remembering it's anywhere from two and a half to six times your body weight of load per step <laughs> times, like we'll say 800 to a thousand steps per kilometer run. Like that's a <laughs> lot of load, right? Crazy when you think so, of it like that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I don't want my calves taking that. They've got enough already when I'm running perfectly. Well, there is no such thing as perfect, but when I'm running beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) And I think on that, like the whole gate thing, it's interesting because if you pick any other sport in the world, like if I wanted to get really good at tennis, I would never, I have a big tennis match coming up. I'm new to tennis though. I'm never going to just like go to the local schoolyard and hit a ball a million times against a wall and expect to get really good at tennis. (laughs) But for some reason with running, we all just assume like, oh, I'll just run more and then I'll get really good at running. But there is yeah. still like, there's still technique to it. And so yeah. getting some coaching on that technical side can make a world of difference for athletes. So yeah, highly encouraging. <laughs> How important do you think it is for someone to have their gait looked at? Very important. <laughs> I recognize I have a lot of bias in that I, it's what I do every day. And I've seen a ton of success with a lot of athletes. I also think it's important to be mindful of the fact that there is no such thing as perfect. And that anytime we do change someone's gait, it's a different load on their body and there's risk involved in doing it. 
So I think we need to be really conscious of like, okay, what are, what are an athlete's goals, both performance, injury prevention, all of the above, like, where do you want to be going as an athlete? And the way I'm going to address it is going to be different. If it's someone who's like, I just want to be able to run 5k three times a week for whatever reason, versus someone who's like, oh, I'm super excited about hitting this goal. I'm really driven towards it versus someone who's like, I'm coming back from an Achilles injury and that kind of thing. I'm, I might consider it differently as yeah. well as I'm going to consider it differently based on where they are in the season, right? Like if you're racing a marathon in, in three weeks, then I'm not going to break, like start you at step right. one. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but I do think it's important. It's really important to be intentional. And if you're someone who has running goals, I think it's definitely worth looking at it. You know, sometimes we can watch someone run and it feels almost like, well, I could see that injury coming from a mile away. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yep, that's definitely what you had happen. <laughs> yeah. And we do see, I don't know if you can relate to this in your experience, but a lot of runners who are used to going through drills and that, but if you ask yeah. them why, like, why do you do your A skip? Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. 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 And so even just bringing people's runners awareness to the intention behind it can be really valuable. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's helpful. Just like, yeah. So then from a doing them too, probably like, oh, this is why I'm doing this or, you know, mm-hmm. first, I don't yeah. know, coach just told me to do this. So, okay. Exactly. So if you're a runner and you have a coach who has said to you, like, do your drills before I would really encourage you to get clear and, and not to be like challenge your coach, your coach is bad, but, but yeah, I no. think for your own benefit, I, I think it's really important that you know, what is the intention of this specific movement when it comes to my running gate, because we don't learn when we're in a flow state. We don't like yeah. you, you learn by being put in an environment where you're forced to respond in some way. Yeah. So I often will encourage runners to build a drill into the middle of their run and then periodically revisit as they're running so that they run well throughout the run. Yeah. So. Versus doing it like at the end or doing it at the mm-hmm. beginning, you're saying like in the throughout yeah. it basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So focus, focus on it for like 30 to 60 seconds at the top of every kilometer or something like that. Just, um, and you don't necessarily have to like stop and then, then start again or that kind of thing, but just like refocus periodically throughout your run. And again, it doesn't have to be every run, but can be really valuable to, to make sure that you're, you're running well. Yeah. I like that. I like that. We'll work work to wrap this up soon. I'm sure you have to get going and everything, but I think we've addressed a lot. I know we had a lot of topics we go through, but this has been good. What, I guess, just to go off what we were just talking about, what are your favorite drills to give athletes? I mean, we talked, Mm. you talked about A skips, B skips. I mean, just from that, but yeah, tons of them, but whichever ones come to your, to your mind. So certainly, um, anything marching focus that that running like I said it's more of a marching pattern than a walking pattern to be running well um so I'll do lots of marching stuff I'll do lots of uh dribbling or ankling um where you're just getting just up and over just at ankle height and then playing around with that getting at different amplitudes with that so like how high you're stepping up and over because really that's where we start to play around a little bit with pace I don't spend it depends a lot on the athlete's goals I actually don't spend a ton of time on a beat certainly more with the track crowd I will but for your sort of average marathon runner and that kind of thing, I can think, yeah. I think that it's sometimes more confusing than helpful. So again, it really depends yeah. on the athlete, but I will spend a lot of time working through an A and what is the intention of the A, but, but basically anything March focused is, is going to be valuable. I think for most athletes. Awesome. Cool. What about yourself? Do you have any favorites? I mean, I'll do, I mean, it depends on like the level of the athlete, but yeah, yeah. A skip, B skip. This is more from a warm up standpoint. I mean, this is right. drill, but, you know, high knees, butt kicks, all that too, from a drill perspective. But will you do anything with a like working on a forward lean or? Yes. Um, yes. Also like keeping the arms at like 90 degrees. Yeah. 
yeah you get eggs in your hand that's one what else and then I mean that's not a drill but like if if they're injured looking at their um, stride rate and yeah 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 so certainly yes the slightly and forward I always refer to it more as a weight shift than a lean and I know it's semantics but just we just to make sure that it's we don't want someone hinging at the hips so yeah we talk about we call the ski jumper cue in at my clinic I'm not sure if that's one you're you're familiar (laughs) with of if you imagine that person you know flying through the air and the ski jumping at the Olympics of it's a slight shift from their ankle that's that is definitely a favorite one so yeah thanks for, for sharing that one yeah yeah no, that'd be, but that's always good. I learned, like, I mean, I think I could do a better job at like explaining why you're doing an A skip because I don't know that I necessarily yeah. like, Hey, yeah. we're going to do these. And most people have never done them before, you know, unless they did right. run in high school or college. So, um, right. but, <laughs> and I think that's one where a lot of athletes are like, it's to warm up, but it's, it's not just like, it's a really important part of like that part of developing a good running pattern. It's it really like that run technique piece is big with the A. Yeah. So. Uh, any others that you do that? No, I would say, so you mentioned cadence and cadence. So cadence is another one that I could talk about forever and always, but (laughs) (laughs) cadence, I would usually, if you're working on someone's gait pattern and encouraging um, them to reduce their overstride with, like I said, going kind of working through marching based drills, then usually their cadence will naturally pick up without you ever necessarily cueing it. So that's the ideal scenario in my mind. There are certainly sometimes in... Yeah. And you know, there, there are definitely, it can be a really good assessment tool or it can be a really great tool of like, and when I say assessment tool of like, if you're running and you have knee pain, what happens if we increase your cadence? Yeah. But, and it can also be a really great tool for that person. Like I said, who's at a point in their training block or their season where it doesn't feel appropriate to like really be breaking down their, their gait altogether. You know, it's like three weeks pre-race and they just need to get through and like hold it together until then, then yes, by all means play with it. I guess I just shy away from again, that idea of if you are running with a high over stride type pattern, it is an overall, like a kind of a different movement pattern than if you're running where you're landing more underneath yourself and it doesn't take forever to correct it. I mean, it depends a lot on the athlete, but if all I'm doing is increasing their cadence long-term, then there's still a lot of potential that we're potentially, potentially, there's a lot of possibility (laughs) that we're not tapping into there for them. Right. So if possible, and I love when runners like right now, when for us in in Toronto and in Canada, there's still no hope of races anytime soon. So this has been a really great time for a lot of athletes of like, take the time now to, to really break it down. So something that, and this is a point when I work with clinicians um, who are excited about working with runners, they'll often ask like, what happens in the off season? But the off season is often when it's like busier than ever. Cause we're taking that time to really focus in on those little details. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So you use like cadence more as like, yeah, like kind of, um, diagnostic or like what happens if we, if we change Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. I think it's important. I I think you're probably saying like, it's not like, there's a lot out there for a bit. Like everyone had to be like around 180 or whatever. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But more so like what, you know, the research shows and you correct me, like if I'm wrong or if you have anything else to share, you know, sometimes increasing it by five to 10% can help with someone with say like knee pain. Um, specifically, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's not something you need to be striding for. Like if you're at 150, like let's go all the way to 180. Like, no, like, yeah, yeah. That doesn't make sense. a little bit. So that and, and other factors come into play too. Like we know that a more experienced runner is probably like, there's, again, there's no one size fits all. And we each have our own, you know, unique sweet spots. Right. 
And a more experienced runner, though, we know will get to their most efficient, they're closer to their own personal most efficient pattern more than a novice runner. So someone who's a newer runner stands to gain a lot more from adjusting their cadence than someone who's got a lot of experience Um, that from a running economy perspective, they estimate that an experienced runner probably only has like a 1% gain from, from focusing on cadence or increasing their cadence, whether it's just by focusing on cadence or whether it's using, you know, overall gait pattern that will naturally increase it um, or automatically increase it. Uh, Whereas a newer runner, it could be like as much as a 5% increase in running economy. So there's a lot of factors that play into the level of someone's success there. And, and even remember that your cadence is going to change sometimes basically, like if you're running faster, your cadence will also go up. Right. Um, So that's one of the other reasons that like the goal isn't always 180. If you're at your super easy run pace, then depending on where you're coming from, 180 might even be less efficient for you. Yeah. So, so yes, agreed. Well, there's a lot of good info in here, guys. I hope you guys like (laughs) this one over and over. And we like, I mean, shared like so much, yeah, good info and hopefully busting some misconceptions out there or even just hearing them again, if you have heard them, you know, by now. Lindsay, at the end of every show, I like to ask every listener what their breaking five moment is. Mm-hmm. In so this can be your running career, it can be your professional career if you prefer to. But is there anything in your running career where you accomplished something that you you know you didn't think you could accomplish, or it's just like this big scary goal um, that mm. you accomplished, or even fell short but went for? Um, that was your breaking five moment. So I automatically gravitate to I raced. I've I've my, I guess my first Ironman distance and my, it just like everything went wrong that day. I didn't, my watch wasn't working. I broke my bike chain and even my training, I'd had a a concussion during training. So I think it was just one of those, like, I just surprised myself how, with how strong I was despite the the laundry list of things that didn't go my way. So that was great. But I think my number one might be, and I share this one because yeah. My number one might be, I have always told myself I'm in, I'm better at endurance. Like I don't, I'm not fast. I do marathons. I do Ironman and that's my sweet spot. Yes. But there was one summer where I was just like, now I want to get good at five K's. Like, it's just because I've told myself this story that I'm not fast, but also like because it. I haven't trained for it. Yes. Um, and the fun thing about five K's is you can show up every single week, re- like you blow up at one race, like, cool. Try it again the next week. Yes. Um, yes. and so I think that summer for me where I really focused in on that of just that like possibility and shattering that belief that I just always had about myself as an athlete uh, was really powerful. And the reason I like to share that one is because I think in the running community, it's like, oh, you did a 10K, then your next step would be a half marathon. And your next step from that has to be a marathon, obviously, but like not necessarily. I think we're also distance focused. And I know you've talked about this too, sometimes of like, I'm super stoked about the mile and like, I don't know if the marathon is for me of like, yes. Yeah. I get a lot of runners who are like, Oh, I just run the 10 K that like, no, the word just (laughs) is not allowed in my clinic. Yes. (laughs) So some other stuff buried up. No, I love that. I mean, I love that clearly because I like, I'm just, yeah, I'm not marathon doesn't necessarily stoke me and it is one of those things where people are like, Oh, have you ran a marathon? Or I have, but it's just like, you know, they assume that if you're a runner, you're doing a marathon. I'm just like, you can be a, you know, a track runner, you can be a 5k runner too, but like, and it can be helpful yeah. on both ends. Like for me, it probably could be helpful to go, you know, maybe train for longer distances for someone that's really good at long distances. Like you're saying, like, go do a 5k summer. Yeah. 
whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I can guarantee that when you train for those shorter distances and then go back to the longer distances, yes. you're going to be so much stronger for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, we'll call the 5k. That's my final answer. Done. No, that's a good one. I like it. And then where can, so, well, let's go into first, where can our listeners find you at? Where's the best yeah. place to connect with you at? Yeah. So easiest place would be uh, probably on Instagram. So it's at Lindsay Scott physio. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Reach out to there. Send a message. There is probably the best place. Yes. Yeah. If you can't already tell, I could talk about this stuff for <laughs> days and days. So yeah. please don't this hesitate. So great. Yeah. No, yeah. This is awesome. yeah. And she has a lot of good content out there. And I know it's even helped me through my injury. There's like a couple of things. I'm just like, yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then let's chat about where else they can find you as far as, well, you shared. So if you are a runner in the Toronto area, and I mean, people come from her like four hours away. So even in the area that needs mm-hmm. a good running physical therapist um, or triathlete, like she's in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. And the name of your company is the runner's academy was that is yeah the runner's academy so you can just do a quick google search or uh, also on instagram at the runner's academy um the runner's academy.com so yeah. yeah. And then you do run coaching as well. Um, yeah. So I, I coach both runners and triathletes. So if that's something that you're curious about looking into, then, um, feel free to, to send me a note. I coach with a group, like a team of coaches. Um, my roster is currently full, but, um, okay. can definitely connect well. And that's always, always evolving. Right. So it can definitely yeah. connect. Yeah. And then for the clinicians out there. So yep. as I said, I spent so much time spinning my wheels about like, how do I get more involved with, with runners? So I, I have um, a couple of things on the go to, to like, I'm just super passionate now about getting other clinicians involved in basically just like, how do we raise the bar for how we support runners? So um, I host once a month, a no cost community call. There's always a theme for the month. So like we had one call this week that was about bone stress injuries and relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's just a no pressure call of clinicians can show up eat their dinner while they're doing it, do it while on the bike, whatever, and just chat through some of their challenges, their learnings, what are some great resources, that kind of thing. Um, So that's once a month. So feel free to reach out if you want to be involved in that. And then I also host a three-month sort of mentorship and mastermind program. It's a small group for clinicians, so five people max, where we just sort of dive into, you know, a mix of technical as well as the, the side of like, how do I build my confidence? How do I get it out there? How do I get more runners in front of me? How do I get more involved in my running running community? So sort of working through the joys and challenges of, of building more of a run focus to your practice or else just yeah. even if you just want to be able to show up for your runners better. So yeah, I'm opening applications for the next cohort. I guess it'll be the fifth cohort soon. So reach out if that sounds at all interesting. I'm happy to share more info. Yeah, and we'll leave notes to like, and I'll ask you to send whatever to all this in the, in the show notes too. So you guys know, and then you also have like a Facebook group as well for clinicians. Yeah. For clinicians. Yeah. So happy to, to invite anyone who wants to share that. So just, I guess the easiest way, again, just reach out if you're curious to to, basically, if you're a clinician, who's excited about working with runners, let's chat because, um, that's yeah, a huge, I think a huge catalyst for me was most definitely that community and collaboration piece. So, uh, let's just yeah. keep building that community. Oh, I love it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, and don't forget, she has like the monthly call as well. And that's all on her Instagram and everything as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. very awesome. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much. Like this oh, was gosh. like, I feel like we just got like hours and listen, you know, <laughs> I don't know how long we actually talked for, but that the podcast was live, but, um, this has been super helpful. I know it's gonna be really helpful for my listeners and, um, I just really appreciate coming on. 
Oh gosh, thank you so much for um, for having me, and thanks to everyone who's who has listened, whether you were on the run or whatever you were up to. <laughs> thank you, thank you, and always happy to chat. Yes, awesome. All right, well, we will catch you guys on the next episode. Until then, go run your life. All right, guys, see you on the next episode of Breaking Five. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Breaking Five, a running podcast. We hope you are running away with some inspiration, tips, and actionable items that you can put towards your Breaking Five moment. Lastly, if you know anyone else with a Breaking Five moment, that doesn't have to actually mean literally Breaking Five, just a Breaking Five moment in general, in running, in life, or anyone else who has great knowledge and background in helping others reach their Breaking Five moment, I would love for you to put me in contact with them. We would love to have them on the show. So if you could and let them know, if you know of someone else, tell them to reach out to me at my Instagram, and that is at Kristen underscore run your life. Again, that's at Kristen underscore run your life. And could you do me a favor? And if you enjoyed today's episode and can think of anyone else who could benefit from listening to it, could you go ahead and share this out on your social media or share this directly with them? That would mean the world to me, seriously. And make sure if you have not already, make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so that you get our weekly updates as we drop the next episodes. Thank you, everyone. We seriously appreciate you tuning in today. We'll see you next time. And until then, go run your life.